Lecture 20, King John and the Magna Carta. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we looked at the career of one of the most famous kings in English history, Richard the Lionheart. In this lecture, we're going to look at one of the most infamous kings in English history, Richard's brother, John. John, just like poor King Stephen, who we talked about a few lectures back, John is one of the only two kings in English history never to have a successor named after him. There's never been a John II. Now, it's our job in this lecture today to figure out why that is. For one thing, John came to the throne under circumstances that were far from ideal. There was significant uncertainty about who should really succeed when Richard died. Now, we have to back up here for a minute and remind ourselves of the details of the Angevin family tree. You'll remember that Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine had had four sons. The oldest one, Henry the Young King, had died without issue. The next one is Richard, who also dies without any children. But next after Richard was Geoffrey. Geoffrey had died before Richard, but Geoffrey had not died without issue. He had left a daughter, but more importantly, he had left a son who was born posthumously. And this son was named Arthur. And this was not an accident. Arthur's mother, Constance of Brittany, she was very well aware of the popularity of the Arthur stories that we talked about a couple of lectures ago. She's very deliberately giving her son a name that marks him out for a royal future. She wants him to end up king of England. So you have Arthur, and then there is John, the fourth son of Henry II. Now, Richard had designated John as his heir on his deathbed. But we've seen before that that's not necessarily enough to seal the deal. But John does have the backing of his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and that does count for a lot. So you have a choice. You have a choice between Arthur, who's the son of an older brother, Geoffrey's older than John, and that would seem to make sense if you're thinking strictly along genealogical lines. And on the other hand, you have John, a younger brother, but John has a big advantage. He's not 12 years old, and that's how old Arthur is at this point, and that's not a good selling point in a potential king. So what happens is that the Angevin dominions split on this question. Normandy and England support John, and Anjou goes for Arthur. But John acts fast. He seizes the Angevin treasury at Chinon just like his great-grandfather Henry I did in 1100 when he rushes to Winchester to get the treasury in England. And I kind of think that they know these stories in the family. They're passed down. He knows what to do. Arthur takes refuge with Philip of France, with the King of France. Now, of course, once John is securely on the throne, Philip of France is automatically John's enemy. And Philip then backs Arthur. Because Philip thinks, and I think he's completely right about this, that if Arthur is king of England, little 12-year-old Arthur, it's going to be a lot easier for Philip of France to control Arthur than it's going to be to control John. 
So for the next couple of years, there are some very complicated maneuvers, both military and diplomatic, between the two camps, pro-John, pro-Arthur. And at one point, Arthur's forces actually capture Eleanor of Aquitaine. He captures his own grandmother and holds her captive. Uh, but John comes to her rescue, and Arthur falls into John's hands for good. And then Arthur disappears. He was doubtless murdered. And one account claims that John did the deed himself in a drunken rage. And then supposedly John tied a stone to the body and threw it into a nearby river. Now, we'll come back to that story later in the lecture. At the very least, John probably ordered the murder. It's his responsibility. And this casts John in a very discreditable light. He's eliminated a rival, but this costs him a lot in goodwill. Now, the rest of the reign is dominated by three major conflicts. John has three major opponents, Pope Innocent III, King Philip of France, and his own barons. And these conflicts overlap with each other in very striking ways. I'm going to talk about them one by one, but along the way we're going to see that they're really closely linked together. All of John's problems are really related to each other. So first we'll talk about the Pope. The Pope throughout John's reign down until the last few months is Innocent III. And Innocent III is one of the most formidable popes in the whole history of the Catholic Church. He came to the papal throne in 1198 at the age of 38. And at the time, uh, a poet who backed the pope's enemies wrote a poem in which he said, Alas, alas, the pope is too young. Clearly, the idea here is the fear that this pope is going to be around for a long time to plague his enemies. Now, Innocent is a very forceful ruler. He does not hesitate to take on kings or even emperors when he thinks they have violated church norms in some way. He got into repeated clashes with King Philip of France. He got deeply involved in a nasty succession dispute in the German Empire. But let's look at what happens when he comes up against King John. You'll remember that in our last lecture, I talked about the very talented administrators that Richard the Lionheart put in place to run England for him. And one of these was Hubert Walter, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Well, he stayed in office under John. He's one of those indispensable men who any king would want to keep in office. He's continuity from the previous administration. But in 1205, Hubert Walter died, and John then caught, got caught up in a very nasty fight over who should replace him as Archbishop of Canterbury. Canterbury is one of the famous monastic cathedrals of England. It's staffed by a community of monks. And the monastic chapter at Canterbury theoretically had the right to the free election of the archbishop. But under the terms of the agreement that had been worked out a hundred years earlier under King Henry I, it was kind of understood that the king is supposed to have a say in the election. Now, usually, the monks and the king would come up with a workable solution, a, a candidate they both could agree on, so no, neither side had to lose face about their rights in the situation. But this time, through a whole series of very complicated circumstances, the monks ended up going ahead and electing a candidate without royal permission. And the king was very angry. He decided to push back, and he forced the chapter then 
to elect his own candidate, and the whole thing ends up in Rome for the Pope to solve. So you've got two candidates. And the Pope could have chosen one or the other, the king's man, the monk's man, but he rejected both of them, and he chose a third man, a man named Stephen Langton. Now, Stephen Langton was an Englishman, but he had spent most of his career actually as an expatriate in France at the University of Paris, where he was teaching theology. And he taught a kind of theology that the Pope was very much in sympathy with. It, it focused on pastoral theology, on preaching to the faithful. And I think what's going on is Pope Innocent figures, this is the perfect time for me to put my own stamp on the church in England. So I'm going to take advantage of it, put in my own man. But King John is outraged. He feels as if these very long-standing precedents have been violated, and he refuses to let Stephen Langton enter the country to become archbishop. And so you have delegations going back and forth frantically between England and Rome, trying desperately to avert an open breach between the king and the pope. But in 1208, Pope Innocent is fed up, and he finally places England under interdict. Now, an interdict is a very serious thing. What it means is essentially the church goes on strike. The crime of the king is so serious that the whole kingdom is going to have to suffer. There are going to be no public church services. No sacraments are going to be administered. No baptisms, no weddings, no funerals. And this obviously causes tremendous spiritual suffering. Think about it. Your wife dies. Your child dies. You can't bury them in consecrated ground. Now, we know that there were some religious communities, some communities of monks that tried to get around these provisions, you know, secret masses, that sort of thing. We know because they got in trouble for it. But on the whole, it was a very grim time. Church bells could not be rung. The whole country must have been rather eerily silent. And it went on like that for about six years because John was adamant. He does not want to give in to the Pope. And furthermore, the interdict is kind of a financial windfall for him because while the church is on strike, it's not doing its job, the king feels perfectly entitled to take the revenues of the church from all of its various landed estates. So the interdict does actually help John to balance the books in those years. But finally, John has to give in because Pope Innocent begins to encourage King Philip of France to invade England and depose him. And it's not a good thing in public relations if the Pope is calling for you to be deposed. That is a good recruitment tool for your enemies. So John decides to give in. He finally lets Stephen Langton come to England and take office as Archbishop of Canterbury. He goes one better than that, and he actually turns the conflict with the Pope into sort of a victory, because John decides to surrender England to the Pope as a papal thief. Now, you might remember Richard had been forced to do this. He had been forced to surrender England to the German emperor as an imperial thief so he could be released from captivity. Nobody really cared about that anymore by this point, so John feels free to give England to the Pope. Now, this doesn't mean very much in practical terms, but it means a lot symbolically, because now Pope Innocent has a special stake in what's going on in England. We'll see later in the lecture that the Pope's attitude to English politics will matter a whole lot 
when King John confronts his barons at the end of the reign. So that's the first of the conflicts of John's reign that I wanted to talk about, and in many ways it's the least damaging and it's the most easily solved. There are hints in the story I just told of the two other conflicts we need to talk about, the one with King Philip and the one with the barons. So let's talk about Philip first. The conflict between John and Philip is just the latest round in the rivalry between the French and the English kings. It goes all the way back to William the Conqueror, because these two kings are in a a position that's rather structurally awkward. They're both kings, of course, but officially the English kings are the vassals of the French kings with respect to their lands in France. As Duke of Normandy and as Count of Anjou, the King of England is subordinate to the King of France. Now, this doesn't mean that the French king can issue orders to the English kings and the English kings will obey them. It doesn't mean that. But it does have symbolic significance, and we'll see in a minute that that can have a huge political impact. So as soon as John becomes king, he and Philip pick up pretty much where Richard and Philip had left off. They're haggling over castles on the borders between their territory, that sort of thing. But in 1200, the two kings make a truce. Then, a few months later, John got married and all hell broke loose. Let me explain. John had been married once before to an English heiress named Isabel of Gloucester, but the marriage had proved childless, and John was in the process of having it dissolved when he became king. This is one of those cases of consanguinity. The spouses are related too closely, and in this case they're related rather closely because they're both great-grandchildren of Henry I, John on the legitimate side, Isabel on the illegitimate side. So that's all in process. He's getting rid of his first wife. And then John encounters a second Isabel. And in a sense, she proves his undoing. This second Isabel is Isabel of Angoulême, heiress to the county of Angoulême in Aquitaine. She's already betrothed to Hugh of Lusignan, a member of a very powerful local family with lands that connect up to Angoulême. Now, this is a very troubled region, and the loyalty of the Lusignan family is not as secure as the king would like to see it. And he's afraid that if this marriage goes forward, if the lands of Hugh of Lusignan and Isabel of Angoulême are united, there's going to be a powerful, potentially hostile block of territory right in the heart of Aquitaine, and that would make the duchy ungovernable. So, in order to prevent this marriage from taking place, King John marries Isabel himself. Now, the extraordinary thing about this marriage is that the bride is 12 years old at the time. Now, child marriages are not unknown among the elite in this period. We saw that young Princess Matilda was sent off to Germany to become empress when she was about 10. But there's usually a bit of delicacy about the age at which the royal couple is going to officially cohabit. There doesn't seem to have been any such delay in this case, and public opinion was a little scandalized by that. Now, to give John a tiny bit of credit, he does seem to have been genuinely infatuated. She was beautiful. It's not clear how he thought about her later on, and she seems to have been completely indifferent to John, at least later in her life. After his death, she simply never mentioned him again. So it was an odd relationship, to say the least. And it had tremendous political repercussions. 
Of course, the Lusignan family feels terribly insulted by the marriage. The bride has been stolen out from under them. Now, John might have been able to come to some sort of arrangement, some sort of safe face-saving arrangement by paying them compensation, but he doesn't pull this off. And the Lusignans complain to their overlord, King Philip of France, who is, of course, also King John's overlord. And this is the chance of a lifetime for Philip. In 1202, Philip summons John to his court in Paris to account for his behavior. Now, technically speaking, as John's feudal superior, he has a right to do this. But here's where that structural absurdity of the two kings' relationship to each other, here's where that enters in. There's no way King John is going to give in and answer this summons. He'll lose face. One king can't just do another king's bidding. So John stood on his dignity and refused. Philip thus declared John a contumacious vassal. Now, that's a fancy way of saying you're defying royal orders. So King Philip thus has technical grounds, legal grounds, to confiscate John's fiefs. Now, of course, it's one thing to declare John's fiefs forfeit. It's quite another thing to actually confiscate them in practice. For that, Philip is going to have to fight. And at first, it's a tough fight. But here, the whole conflict between John and his nephew Arthur comes into the picture. I already mentioned at the beginning of the lecture that Arthur ended up dead. And one big reason is that Philip is trying to use Arthur. He's trying to install Arthur in John's lands, in John's place. So Philip is using the conflict between uncle and nephew to his advantage, and that's dangerous. That's why Arthur has to die. As I said, John captured Arthur. Arthur disappeared. And this, among other things, helps turn public opinion against John. In addition, John had also treated some of his nobles really shabbily. Um, a number of prisoners had been taken. John wasn't going to let them have the ransoms. And, and this made them very angry. And John's supporters began to desert him. John also just seems to have lacked the martial spirit for the conflict. Maybe if he'd acted a little more decisively, he could have stopped Philip from advancing into his lands. And in fact, contemporary writers seem rather puzzled about why John didn't do more to try to counter the threat from Philip. At any rate, by 1204, King Philip has seized most of John's lands in France. Normandy is gone. Maine and Anjou are gone. Poitou is gone. Only the rest of Aquitaine remains. The most remote, most troublesome, least remunerative of all the English lands in France. That's all that's left. And this is a catastrophe. The Angevin Empire, if we can call it that, it's no more. And John spends most of the rest of his reign trying to get it back. Now, one reason John wants to get the land back is because the loss of Normandy has put many of John's barons in a terrible position. Over the years since the Norman conquest, plenty of families had ended up dividing into two branches, one English, one Norman. It was just easier to administer the lands that way. You might have one son take the English lands, one son take the Norman lands. But still, there were quite a few that had lands on both sides of the channel. Now, they owe allegiance to two different kings who hate each other. For example, one of the most important barons, William Marshall, has to get special permission from John to do homage to King Philip for his lands in France. 
And this causes serious tension between William Marshall and King John. So for many years after the loss of Normandy, John is plotting and scheming to get the lands back. He has to raise the funds, he has to recruit the allies, and this is very expensive. And to pay for these efforts, he needs to raise enormous sums of money. And remember, he's not getting any money from Normandy anymore. He's not getting any money from Anjou. England has to bear essentially the whole financial burden. So John taxes the people of England. He taxes the clergy. He also imposes very heavy fines on his nobles, even when they commit very minor offenses. And certainly, there's a lot of grumbling. There's a body of opinion among the barons that feels like, first, the king is incompetent enough to lose his lands. Now, he's making us pay for his failure. And he doesn't exactly win friends along the way. For one thing, John is cheap. This is not a trait that's admired in the Middle Ages. He was still supporting his ex-wife, essentially paying her alimony. That's Isabel of Gloucester. And it looks as if he actually made Isabel of Gloucester and his current queen, Isabel of Angoulême, live under the same roof to save a little money. That's charming. John can also be extremely capricious and cruel to his nobles. For one thing, he's notorious in his personal appetites. Now, not in the rather sweet way that we saw with Henry I. Henry I seems to have cared very deeply for all of his many, many mistresses and illegitimate children. For John, the whole thing is about power. He seems to have liked to humiliate his barons by deliberately insisting on sleeping with their wives and daughters. And some of these stories are, are awful. I don't even want to tell them. So this is the atmosphere between the king and his barons when John is trying one last time in 1214 to get back his French lands. He assembles an army. He forges an alliance with his nephew, Otto of Germany. Otto of Germany is locked in a struggle at the time to become German emperor. And King Philip of France is backing the other side. And John is planning a complicated pincer movement, whereby he and Otto are going to converge on Philip and destroy him. John is supposed to come up from the south, from the lands in France that he still controlled. Otto's going to come from the east, and they're going to meet up in the low countries and attack Philip together. But this proves to be too complicated to pull off, and the two allied armies never met up. And Philip ended up going up against Otto alone on July 27, 1214, and he beat him decisively at Bouvines. And there's a wonderful illustration of the Battle of Bouvines. It comes from a chronicle written in the middle of the 13th century by an English monk named Matthew Paris, and it depicts King Philip in the battle uh, just after he's been knocked off his horse. And in fact, he was unhorsed several times in the course of the fighting, but unfortunately for the hopes of the English, Philip always got back on his horse again, and he won the battle. And this defeat at Bouvines means the end of any realistic hope that John is going to get back his lands in France. He's out of money, he's out of allies, and it turns out he's out of time. Because now we come, at last, to the third of the major conflicts of John's reign, the one with his own barons. And I've been hinting at this throughout the lecture. They don't like John. They don't trust him. They might have been able to put up with all of his many faults if he had at least been successful, but he wasn't. And so a group of barons decided to get together to try to make him be a better king. 
and the defeat at Bouvines led more or less directly to Magna Carta. In the spring of 1215, a group of barons coalesced that includes, interestingly, a disproportionate number of northerners, always the most independent-minded uh, of the English. The barons are advised by Archbishop Stephen Langton. He's now safely in office, but he's still not a big fan of King John, so here you see the various conflicts of the reign feeding into each other. And these barons formulated certain demands of the king with regard to taxation and good governance generally, and they took up arms to enforce these demands. And in June, at the field of Runnymede, just east of Windsor, on the banks of the Thames, John agreed to the Great Charter, Magna Carta. The Charter was a compromise document. Stephen Langton had edited it, and there are a lot of goodies in Magna Carta for the Church, much more than were in an earlier draft. The first clause, in fact, guarantees the liberties of the English Church. There are also quite a few very specific, almost mind-numbingly detailed provisions. They have to do with economic grievances, for example. The Charter encourages trade by demanding the removal of fish weirs, that is, permanent fishnets. These fish weirs on certain uh, rivers were obstructing shipping, and so you wanted to get rid of those so that uh, ships could go up and down, and that would foster trade. So that's in Magna Carta. But there are two clauses I want to pay a little more attention to because they speak to two of the most important issues of John's reign, and they also have quite a future ahead of them. And I'm going to talk about them in reverse of the order in which they appear in the document. The first is Clause 39, and this guarantees trial by your peers to every free man in England. And this clause was directed at the arbitrary imprisonments that John was known for. From now on, Magna Carta says, you're going to have to convince other people that somebody deserves punishment. Now, it does say specifically that this is applying to free men, and that would exclude a lot of people in 1215. There are a lot of serfs who wouldn't have been covered. But over time, this clause proves to be the basis for the principle that everyone is equal under the law. The second clause I want to talk about is Clause 12. It states that extraordinary or unaccustomed taxes cannot be levied without the consent of the people. And this clause, too, was a reaction to the events of John's reign. John had had to impose a lot of extraordinary taxes to try to raise money for his various attempts to get his French lands back. But it may also have been a slap at King Richard. Remember, King Richard had that great idea to impose uh, import duties. But anyway, here again, the barons are demanding more of a say in how they're going to be governed. And clearly, the implications of this uh, are, are, are very, very important. We're going to see them play out in future lectures. This is going to be the, uh, the kernel of Parliament, the idea that you have to ask people uh, when you want taxes. But all that lies ahead of us. Certainly, the barons in 1215 don't imagine that they're founding representative democracy. They just want to stop the king from acting arbitrarily. And this is their big dilemma. Now they've forced the king to promise something. How are they going to get him to keep his promise? They aim to do this by means of Clause 61 of the document. It's known as the Security Clause. The Security Clause creates a council of 25 barons, and they're given the job of making sure that the king is going to follow the charter. Now, exactly how this is going to work is left a little vague, and the security clause is, without a doubt, the part of the document that King John hates the most. It's a huge insult to his dignity. 
Um, and even though we don't see how it's really going to work, he really doesn't like it. After Magna Carta was agreed to, John then did something extraordinary, and here's another connection to an earlier conflict, this one with the Pope. John appealed to Pope Innocent to be absolved from the oath he had sworn to comply with Magna Carta, and the grounds were that this oath had been extracted from him under duress. Now, of course, an oath sworn under duress, according to canon law, is invalid. So the Pope absolved John from the oath. John is now Pope Innocent's favored son, his vassal, and the Pope is looking out for John. And in fact, the Pope is furious with Stephen Langton, the guy he had handpicked to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He's really angry at, at Stephen Langton for getting mixed up in this whole conflict. So with papal backing, John goes on the offensive again, and England degenerates into civil war. Some of the barons conclude that there's no way they're going to get John to cooperate with them, so they take the extraordinary step of actually inviting the son of King Philip of France, Prince Louis, to come over to England and become King of England instead of John. Now, Prince Louis is at least a plausible candidate because his wife is Blanche of Castile, who's the granddaughter of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. So things have gotten so bad in England that the barons are actually welcoming a French invading army. But not all of them. Some barons feel that maybe this is a step too far. Uh, and so some of them back the king. One of John's staunchest allies is William Marshall, the baron I mentioned earlier, who was in that awkward position due to the loss of Normandy. William Marshall's son, though, backs the rebels. And that's where things stand when John dies rather suddenly in October of 1216. There's an ongoing civil war with foreign troops on English soil. The heir to the throne, Prince Henry, is nine years old. So can we conclude that John deserves all of the bad things that have been said about him? Or is there a case to be made for John? Some historians have tried to make such a case, especially ones who love to work with royal records, because one of the things that does get better in John's reign is record keeping. This is when you see the beginnings of series of records, like the close rolls and the patent rolls. These are records of property transactions. They're all kept in a central location, so you can go and look them up if you have a dispute about land. On the other hand, because we have such good records, we can see exactly when John is behaving tyrannically. On the upside, again, we have yet another reorganization of the royal household, and we have very good accounts from the household from now on. We know, for example, that King John paid his bath attendant two pence for his monthly bath. John's the first king for whom we have that level of detail. That's not a lot to set next to a record of military defeat and totally dysfunctional relations with your barons. At the time and since, John's reign has mostly been judged a failure. Your job as king is to protect your lands from invasion. John fails at that. By losing Normandy, John oversees the rupture of the link between England and Normandy that goes all the way back to William the Conqueror. And John leaves his very young son, Henry, the challenging task of restoring confidence in the crown. We'll see that this is a task for which little Henry is not ideally suited. Henry's going to rule for 56 years, not very well. But before we look at the politics of Henry's reign, we're going to pause and look at what daily life was like in England in the 13th century. How had it changed since the Norman Conquest? We'll find out next time.